Thank you for listening to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show on RLC, WVPHFM in Piscataway, 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, Sarah Morrison, bringing you a fascinating topic every week that let you know what's going on in your backyard. You can stream us live, www.thecore.fm or 90.3 FM on your radio dial. You can get our podcast at thecore.fm as well. We are on Facebook. Our page is called Core of the Matter at 90.3 The Core. And we are on Twitter as well, twitter.com slash core of the matter. Can you imagine President Obama celebrating the downfall of Osama bin Laden by going to a bar on Pennsylvania Avenue, throwing back a few drinks, celebrating his victory by charming those around him and being charmed in return? Neither can I. But believe it or not, there was a time where this was normal. A certain General George Washington, after his defeat of the British that made him a hero for patriots, made his way to the Indian Queen Tavern to celebrate the newly independent 13 colonies. There were toasts made, one correlating with each colony, as General Washington addressed the town, and the townspeople congratulated him in return. Where was this tavern? In no other than our own New Brunswick. Now, the tavern stands in Piscataway's East Jersey Old Town Village, a miniature village that stands in Johnson Park, made up of buildings from the 1700s and 1800s. Some of them are reconstructions, and some, like the tavern, were moved in their entirety to the site in the 1970s and 80s. It's only one of many historical spots in Piscataway, New Brunswick, that seem to go by the wayside when we talk about our neighborhoods. Some are relocated, like in the village, and some stand today, like Piscataway's own Cornelius Lau House. In honor of our nation's 235th birthday, I decided to explore these sites to remind you, the listeners, of the tremendous historical significance that our neighborhoods have and to celebrate the 4th of July not just with hot dogs and American flags but with knowledge and pride for our colonial neighborhoods. I spoke with Director of Restoration and Site Management Michael Boylan and Director of Exhibits and Public Programs Mark Nonestide of the East Jersey Old Town Village and Museum Educator of the Cornelius Lau House Ken Helsby about the tremendous importance Piscataway in New Brunswick holds to colonial history on this week's Core of the Matter. I'm Mark Nonestein, Director of uh, Exhibits and Programs here at East Jersey Old Town Village. I'm Ken Helsby, I'm the Museum Educator at the Cornelius Lau House. And my name's Michael Boylan, and I'm the Director of Restoration and Site Management. Uh, Both sites are operated by Middlesex County Cultural and Heritage Commission. That's the umbrella organization that operates East Jersey Old Town Village here in Piscataway and uh, the Cornelius Lau House, the Middlesex County Museum. It's an agency of Middlesex County government supported by the Board of Chosen Freeholders. Tell me a little bit about where we're sitting, what's here, what is this, just go through the history of it. So uh, East Jersey Old Town Village is located in Johnson Park along River Road in Piscataway. It is a uh, collection of historic buildings that were relocated to the park in the 1970s and 80s. And these are historic structures that date from the mid-1700s through to the mid-1800s. And they are a collection of different types of buildings from the time period. So there is a, a tavern, a wheelwright shop, a blacksmith shop, a schoolhouse, a church, and different people's uh, homes as well. And they were moved from different areas in central New Jersey, New Brunswick, Piscataway, uh, as far north as Bedminster Township and Warren Township as well. Uh, And the buildings are used to have exhibits about central New Jersey history. We do permanent displays and rotating uh, exhibits as well, and we have lots of uh, public programs at our site. All of our programs are offered free to the public. We have lots of uh, school groups that visit us and tours that come to our site and they get a chance to learn about the history of uh, 
of central New Jersey. So what's on permanent display and what are some of the displays you have now? We have a display in the Indian Queen Tavern, which was a historic tavern that was originally located in New Brunswick. The uh, tavern has a display about taverns in central New Jersey, so it, the building acts as a great backdrop for this, uh, for this display. And people can learn about the history of these types of structures in Middlesex County, what the different rooms were used for. We've recreated some of the rooms as they would have been in the early 19th century. And we're also very fortunate to have archaeological artifacts that were discovered at the tavern site in 2003 when uh, Route 18 was being uh, widened or worked on through uh, New Brunswick. There was some archaeology work that took place, and the county acquired the artifacts from that excavation, and we have some of that material on display. So these were items that were once in the tavern. They were then discarded, and now after 150, 200 years, they're back in the building again. Under a highway. Right. (laughs) What did you find? Well, the work was... uh done by the New Jersey Department of Transportation. They contracted with uh, an archaeological firm to do the actual excavations, and they found a whole host of material, mainly um, glassware and, and ceramic items, so dishes, bottles, that, again, that date back to the uh, the 18th century up through to the, the 1800s. And when we utilized them in the exhibit, we glued back together some of the dishes. Uh, so we almost have complete dishes that were reconstructed for display. You don't realize that there's actually history and I'm, I also happen to be a history major so I'm really into this you don't know that you're actually walking you were literally driving over right. piles of history and I think that's what's interesting about it is because from an archaeological perspective it's history you don't see so it, it, just because you don't see the building doesn't mean that the history isn't there it's just there uh, in this case buried below the ground the, the other thing that, that's interesting to go along with that is that a lot of people are aware of the disruption in traffic when a lot of this archaeology and this restoration is, or this road improvement is taking place. Like there was tremendous amount of archaeological research done along River Road in 2000 and 2001, and then later with the Indian Queen Tavern site over in New Brunswick when they're reconfiguring Route 18 and everything. And then everybody always drives by it and sees the inconvenience and they see the fence, but they're not often aware of what's actually coming out of the ground unless they're historically in tuned exactly. um, to what's going on in their neighborhood, which a lot of people aren't. So what we're able to do now at, at this site and as well as the Lau House, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is show people the fruits of you know the labor that went into the reconfiguring Route 18, which was this massive project that has won national awards, but it was done in a way that was respectful of the history of the area and actually um, you know, reaped benefits, historically speaking. Exactly. So we touched briefly, you might have something uh, to add to this, that you were able to put together different pieces of plates and put together actual displays of exhibits. So what sort of restoration goes into that? What sort of effort do you have to make to put those artifacts together and to put them on display to make sure that they're historically accurate? Putting the, the artifacts together is it's kind of tedious and, and time-consuming. It's like building a, a jigsaw puzzle out of all these little broken pieces. In terms of the restoration of the buildings, the county has, has made sure that uh, you know, the buildings are certainly able to handle the, the amount of uh, public you know, that we have coming here and uh, you know, structurally so that you know, they're sound buildings you know, once again, considering that they're, you know, most of the buildings here are, are over 200 years old. Definitely. So that's a lot of care that had to go into moving the buildings. How did you, how do you move a building? 
Well, the, the buildings here came here through a variety of different methods. For the most part, the buildings were, especially the smaller buildings, the roofs were cut off, put on flatbed trucks, and then rolled here. Some of the buildings that we have were completely taken apart. Uh, all of the parts were numbered and then put together again like a big jigsaw puzzle. We also have a couple of replica buildings. The building we're in now, the New Brunswick Barracks, is a replica building. It's all new construction. However, the stones that make up the outside veneer of, of the building are cut stone that came from an abandoned 1850s mill. The stones were donated here, and they were, they were you know, put on the outside of the building. Uh, we also have another replica building. It's called the, uh, the Church of the Three Mile Run, which was a very early church that was on the outskirts of New Brunswick. Cemetery still exists right on Route 27. And it's based on you know, what a Dutch church would have looked like in the, in the early 1700s. And again, using those same recycled uh, stones. All right, so the area was mostly Dutch? Yes. Uh, this area uh, was you know, primarily settled by the Dutch early on. Then, of course, you have the English coming in, but mostly Dutch. What would that have meant for taking sides in the Revolutionary War with the Dutch, with the Dutch, with the Dutch presence in New Brunswick and Piscataway? I mean, early on, primary settlers, as Mike mentioned, are uh, Dutch. Um, there are uh, uh, Eng- people of English descent. They're primarily New Englanders that are coming from. Connecticut, Massachusetts, and southern Maine and New Hampshire. And then we also see other groups as well. Um, it's, it's an extremely diverse region uh, in the 18th century. There are uh, French Huguenots. There are Scotch-Irish, especially in places like Perth Amboy. There are um, Africans. There are Native Americans. Uh, if you go a little bit west of uh, Middlesex County, there are uh, German settlements. And we see some of that also. There are some early Germans in New Brunswick as well. You said that there were Africans in the around this time period. Were they slaves or were they free? There's both. Uh, there's both here at the time. Well, we know about their contributions through historic documents from the time period. But yeah, there's both free and enslaved. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. Were the were they freed by their owners in New Jersey and then they just established themselves? Is that how that would have worked? Right. Yes. Yeah. That simple. <laughs> so there is this extreme diversity, and as as you mentioned, so how does that affect the um, during the Revolutionary War time period? I think personally, what I, I I find interesting is that you have people that are forced to make ideological decisions about who they're going to support uh, and where their loyalties are going to lie, and that's you know that's certainly one internal conflict that's happening here in Central New Jersey, and I think that that is then exasperated by the fact that the war then comes knocking at people's doors, literally. You have uh, the entire British Army that shows up at one point here in central New Jersey. So there's a direct consequence for the decisions that these people make, which is different from other areas of the colony, maybe that don't see direct impact from whatever side that they choose. I mean, here in central New Jersey, uh, ultimately they have to live uh, uh, with these decisions, and not only with the British being here, but also with the continental and the local militia as well being in the area and the the impact that this has on the local uh, the local citizens was there a large vocalization of support for one side or the other new jersey is often and in this area isn't any different it's often seen as being broken up into thirds i mean you have a third of the people who are loyalists wanting to support the crown you have a third that are you know americans the rebels uh, and then you have another third that is kind of playing both sides and they kind of wait to see what's going on. I mean, you have a large amount of Quakers who are pacifists and they're not going to fight on either side. And this area is, is no different than, you know, much of, of the state during the war. It could also be an economic decision, too, based on what the business that they 
their family was involved in, which side was going to support them better. So it was often left up, you know, a personal choice. And sometimes that didn't even transfer down into your family either. Families broke up just just as, you know, 100 years later they did during the Civil War. There was differences in opinion. Yeah, it's very much uh, America's first Civil War that's going on here. I mean, you have father against son, you have neighbor against neighbor, you have brother against brother. We have a building here, the Vanderveer House, where this family is, is, is caught up in this. The gentleman, Elias, is, he's arrested by a British raiding party, and he dies as a result of his incarceration. He's 33 years old. He leaves behind a pregnant wife and an 18-month-old son. And that's typical of what's going on. I mean, you have people who are uh, getting visited in the middle of the night. You know, early on, it's, it's the loyalists that are the ones that are kind of in control. They're pointing out their neighbors to the British soldiers. And then, you know, as the tide of the war starts to change, it, it's really the Americans, the, the rebels that are the ones in charge. And the only place that the loyalists are really safe anymore is, you know, outside of New York City under the protection of, of the British Army. And where was New Jersey at this point? Was it controlled by rebels, American rebels? Was it con- was it more I, British? I think it's a no man's land, really, and that's I mean that's one of the fascinating things for people who study the, the time period is that impact that uh, that it has on the region. Control sort of goes back and forth depending on what Troop army is here at the time. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it does. And what's what's really going on is is you have the British kind of penned up in cities, and because they can't control the countryside, you have. The, the Continental Army up in the, the foothills of the Wachong Mountains here, and, and they're basically watching the British movements. Anytime that they go out and send out foraging parties for food and things like this, they're they're ambushed and attacked, and the Americans are not coming out of these hills, and the British really can't go up there and, and get them. So in, in many ways, especially after, you know, after the Battle of Monmouth, you know, in 78, it's really very much a stalemate. The British are, are only able to control some cities, and everywhere else, it's like Mark is saying, it's it's, it's a no man's land. Um, For a time period, they con- don't they control the uh, the entrance to the harbor, New York Harbor, or, right, or yeah. there's a big fight over that that control of the harbor and everything. And then you have the you know the groundwork for the the revolution have been laid down in Philadelphia. So just like today, we're kind of New Jersey is this no man's land, sometimes referred to as the hub between New York and Philadelphia. It was really that push back and forth that you see a lot during the revolution as well. Yeah, and some of the uh, uh, decisions about who they're supporting are very practical. Uh, some of it's tied to the economics of the family, So, which Ken can talk about more. But people like Cornelius Lau, who is a loyalist, he sides with the British, uh, his primary income comes from shipping activities and trading between goods that are coming in from England. So his bread and butter money, in essence, is the ties that... Uh, that he has with uh, shippers in England, so it would come as no surprise that he would, you know, he would side with, uh, you know, with the loyalists. And, and of course, his house is what still stands today uh, in Piscataway, and is now the Middlesex County Museum. Okay, so I want to before we get to the Lau House, I want to talk a little bit if someone can speak about the Battle of New Brunswick, which is something I think kind of goes by the wayside. Uh, Alexander Hamilton had a lookout point where Old Queens is today. That street's Hamilton Street. Perfect view of the Raritan River. You can see where the British are coming. And that's something I only learned recently in the last couple <laughs> months. And I was blown away to hear that. Um, what was what was the deal with the Battle of New Brunswick? Well, Why that? Well, you know, basically what you have going on is um, Washington retreating through New Jersey. I mean, he has suffered a series of major defeats uh, starting in August of 76, the Battle of Long Island, you know, Brooklyn Heights, Harlem, 
then coming over here, New Jersey loses the Battle of Fort Lee, which is a major disaster. Uh, they lose, you know, their tents and their supplies and their baggage train. So by the time he gets to New Brunswick, uh, it is late November of 1776, and you know when he starts out in in Manhattan, you know he has you know some estimates between like maybe twelve and fourteen thousand soldiers against an army that is you know an estimate around twenty five thirty thousand soldiers. Um, and when he gets to New Brunswick, he has uh, uh, a fighting force that is probably less than a thousand. Wow. He um, on December first, seventeen seventy six, he loses half of his army. Uh, it's often referred to as the darkest day of American history, darkest day of the revolution. Uh, these soldiers had signed contracts for a year, and that that contract was up. And even though he kind of begs and pleads them, pleads to them. Uh, to stay, uh, you know, he loses you know half of his army basically at that point. So when when they're when they're leaving New Brunswick, um, he has I think the estimates are about less than fifteen hundred soldiers. Uh, and of those fifteen hundred soldiers, probably half of them are, are any kind of in any kind of shape to actually fight. Um, the story that you're referring to with Alexander Hamilton um, with this artillery battery up on uh, the the um, original grounds of, of Rutgers University, Old Queens just goes to show you how close these two armies are, that as Washington is kind of melting away down Route 27, trying to get out of New Brunswick, um, you have the British Army in Highland Park crossing over the river, and Alexander Hamilton is firing cannon at them, you know, basically to hold them hold them off. Uh, that's how close these, these two armies are together. I mean, the war is, is essentially over by the time Washington leaves New Brunswick. Um, you know, he when he gets to New Brunswick, he's expecting to set up New Brunswick as kind of the front lines of the war. He's got a river out there. There's some high points. Uh, they burn the bridge, Landing Lane Bridge, which was the only bridge over uh, over the Raritan at the time. So there was no bridge in New Brunswick coming from Highland Park into the city. Um, and you know, he's basically fighting for his life at this point, uh, and he's going against an army that is the you know most powerful military force on, on the face of the earth at the time. So how were they getting across the river if there was no bridge? They were just sending cannons across? Um, well, uh, you mean the, the British? Yeah. Uh, the British had brought with them um, um, some, some boats um, and, and, and rafts and things like that. Um, and the uh, Landing Lane Bridge was only partially burned. I mean, they didn't completely destroy it. And so... Uh, they w- were able to, I guess, use that uh, portions of that to to, to swing around, um, um, but you know they were they were pretty well prepared. Uh, they had uh, certainly um, you know, come here, you know, looking to do business to take the colonies back. I mean, they were not messing around. Yeah, so they you can't imagine carrying a boat with you if you have to. <laughs> not exactly inflatable in 1770. Well, but. you know, often uh, and especially after the war. There's a lot of criticism of the British uh, uh, high command because, you know, at the point when they de- when they defeat Washington at Fort Lee and they realize that he is trying to escape through New Jersey, they don't send a force up the Raritan River to basically uh, pin him in between two large uh, uh, British forces. And by not doing that, it allows him to get across the Raritan and to get himself some breathing room so that he can get you know all the way through down through Trenton and and you know go. Uh, across the Delaware, um, start to reform an army uh, that is then able to 
come across the river and on uh, you know the famous Battle of Trenton, Christmas of seventeen seventy six, and um, you know start to roll back all of these advances that the British and their their Hessian allies really set themselves up with. And what Mike just mentioned too, I mean, it, it sets up what happens in central New Jersey for the next six, seven months. You have Washington with his troops that then cross over the Delaware into Pennsylvania. But it's December of 1776, and the British Army goes into winter encampment at this time. Uh, so in essence, fighting in those days was very different from today. I mean, the weather certainly had an effect on the way that they fought. And knowing that winter was fast approaching and that they needed to go into winter encampment, uh, the British sort of hold up in New Brunswick, set up their winter encampment. And as Mike mentioned, you have thousands and thousands of troops that just decide they're going to encamp in this area until the, uh, until the springtime. And they occupy the region from uh, December 1st, 1776 to June 22nd of 1777. And there is a, a tremendous amount of skirmishes that take place during that time where you have the main army in New Brunswick. There's just so many there that they spill out into the countryside. So they're over here in Piscataway, they're at Raritan Landing, they're in uh, Bonham Town in Edison out towards Perth Amboy. Perth Amboy is occupied by the British at this time. You have uh, Washington in Pennsylvania. You have a local militia, the Middlesex County militia, and other local militia that are uh, that are in the region um, harassing the British. The, the British often are sending out these raiding parties and raiding people's farms and taking their goods to feed and supply the main troops that are back in New Brunswick. And, I mean, you can imagine all, all these soldiers, they have to eat, they have to have supplies, and so they send these uh, raiding parties out and they raid farms in Piscataway and the surrounding area and take people's chickens and hogs and horses and bring them back uh, to the city to sustain the, all the troops that are there. And and one of the buildings we have here at East Jersey Old Town, the, the Jeremiah Dunn House, the Dunn family was involved in the Revolutionary War. And after the war, the family filed claims to get reimbursement for goods that were lost during the war. And we have a copy. I just read a couple of the things that were lost from the war. So this was 1776 to 1777. Uh, they filed for a claim for their, their bed and bedding for a mare, uh, a horse, a colt. Uh, they lost 10 hogs. They lost their, their mirror, their looking glass. 35 bushels of wheat were stolen from their property. A beehive, you know, for the honey was taken from the property. One saddle that they make a note was almost new was also taken from the property. So this becomes very real to the people who are living in the area, whose farms are being raided and whose goods are being taken and stolen out and uh, brought back to the, uh, the main armies uh, in New Brunswick. And what's great is that these ledgers do survive today. Uh, that gives us a hint of how real the war was for the people that were living in this area. Where did you find that ledger? Well, these are the, the New Jersey State Archives in Trenton has, uh, has the war reparations, these claims that were filed by the citizens of, of New Jersey and the Middlesex County uh, lists are in those, uh, in those ledgers. So it does give, give us a sort of visually what was happening uh, to the families uh, in the area. In Elias Vanderveer, too, that, that Mike mentioned, uh, who is uh, involved with the local militia, you know, he's trying to protect his farm uh, and uh, and skirmishing with these British raiding parties, uh, and, and as part of that gets captured and sent to a prison and, and dies there. So, I mean, it's very real. We talked about that earlier. I mean, you can see how, uh, how it really does affect the people um, uh, in central New Jersey. That's definitely something lost in translation in history books and anything else. You don't realize that these were 35 bushels of wheat was... 
food for a winter at this point. They have to make food. If you don't have your hogs, what are you eating? If you don't have your horse, where are you going? Yeah. I mean, these farmers had to sustain themselves and their families as well, you know, (laughs) over the winter time. And, uh, and, uh, you know, at the same time, they're, they're fighting, uh, this war for their freedom and also trying to, to sustain their families as well. The, uh, the, the claim on there, which struck out at me was, uh, the, the one for the saddle, and you know, almost in parentheses, it was almost new. So somebody owes me more money than just an old saddle that I had. So it was almost like a modern day insurance claim. You yep. know, it was like making sure that I got reparations for what was really taken. Yeah, and, and this is just one end of it. There's also uh, we see notations where barns are burned, houses are burned. So I mean, it could be very catastrophic for some of the families living in here. Not only are you losing your goods, you could potentially lose your entire house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in cases like uh, Elias Vanderveer, I mean, he lost his life. Um, you know, uh, and that's uh, you know again that that brings it very very real and very home. Yeah. The saddle stuck out to me also. Mm-hmm. That was almost new. I thought that was interesting that they felt the need to note that. So if you know where, do you know where in New Brunswick about, meaning using the modern New Brunswick map, where these soldiers were camping, you said all over, where was where were they headquartered in terms of an actual New Brunswick street? Right. Well, the, the city of New Brunswick in 1776 contained, there was about a, roughly 150 families and the, the, the urban core of the city uh, would have been in the vicinity of what's now Albany Street uh, and Route 18 near the river. And that's the, the, the center of the city. But from there, it sort of spreads out um, uh, along the countryside. But that, that's the, the urban area. Uh, but, you know, clearly, when Mike mentioned, I mean, there's, there's tens of thousands of soldiers that suddenly show up. I mean, it's impossible for them to be encamped in all these you know, 150 families that are living in the city. And so they, they really spread out from there. Uh, a surviving structure that has strong ties to the Revolutionary War is the Bucklew Mansion in Bucklew Park along Easton Avenue uh, in New Brunswick, just across from uh, the St. Peter's Hospital. Um, and there was a, uh, uh, I believe it was a Hessian uh, outpost that was there uh, that had occupied that house. And there's some damage from the Revolutionary War that's still evident in the home today. You can go visit and, and see the uh, the damage that these soldiers uh, caused. Uh, and then Raritan Landing was also a, a British outpost, so they're, uh, they're mm-hmm. camped there as well. And, and the site of East Jersey Old Town was um, probably one of the last outposts from, from the city uh, where there were a number of Hessian, these are German mercenaries, uh, that were camped, uh, camped here. Yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought up Bucklew, the Bucklew House. All right, good. Yeah, um, here in Piscataway, you know, the numbers were something along the lines of you know six thousand British regulars and about nine hundred Hessian troops, uh, right at the intersection of um, River Road and Hose Lane West. There were earthworks that were manned by uh, uh, Hessian soldiers, and uh, there were skirmishes uh, throughout this this area. Uh, you know, they, the 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 British were certainly. Um, you know, taking over people's homes. They were quartering themselves, especially the officers would have taken the finer homes. Uh, there was a barracks, the New Brunswick barracks in, in New Brunswick, but, you know, that wasn't a, a very, very large structure. I mean, probably would have held maybe 350, maybe 400 soldiers. That's fascinating. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really, yeah. my, inter, my, my <clears throat> now official double major history buff is thrilled to hear this. So, was there any were there any artifacts you found in New Brunswick Piscataway area that are worth mentioning from uh, that era? There's there's been, uh, I mean there's there's 
evidence of the Revolutionary War time period, both in uh, above-ground structures that survived, like the Buckley Mansion, the, uh, the Cornelius Landhouse, uh, and uh, several buildings that we, hear, that we have here at East Jersey Old Town that have direct connections to the war that people can come visit, walk through, and learn about that period. But then there's also archaeological evidence uh, that's been found as well, uh, in this area, and, and a tremendous, you know, a tremendous amount. This room that we're having our interview, we have a display case here that's filled with uh, musket balls that were found along River Road uh, from the um, the Revolutionary War time period. But in the, the archaeology work that's taken place at Raritan Landing, uh, at some locations along River Road, and in New Brunswick, they found evidence of musket balls mm-hmm. and cannonballs and gun parts, uh, uniform parts, buttons, buttons. from. Uh, infantry units that were known to have been camped here on the side of the river. We, we even have on display a what's called a bar shot. This is a naval artillery piece. It looks like a dumbbell that would have been placed into a cannon and fired at the rigging of a ship. And it was meant to tear through the rigging and the ropes, and it would uh, incapacitate the ship so it couldn't maneuver. And then it would be like a you know like a, a duck sitting in water, and they could they could then attack it. And they found uh, one of these bar shots at at Raritan Landing. You know, as Ken mentioned, buttons too off of uh, soldiers' uniforms. So yeah, I mean, there's very real artifacts that have been uh, been discovered uh, uh, in the area that gives further testament to to the location of where these troops were encamped. So when you find buttons, you assume that that's where soldiers were staying. When you find artillery, you assume that's where a fighting happened. There are notations in historic documents to these uh, brush huts that were built uh, to house some of the soldiers, especially in uh, uh, places like Piscataway, which is predominantly rural and agricultural, and there's not enough buildings to sustain the troops. So they're building these huts that often have um, dugout floors with fire pits. And some of the archaeologists have found uh, the fire pits where they cook their food. Uh, so even even the bones of the animals that they butchered, so their last meals that were cooked over these fires, the bones were uh, have been found as well from the, the animals that they ate. Um, and uh, so that's that's been found also in, in Piscataway. So fascinating. You, you read history and you forget that these people had to eat. Right. They did all these normal things, and you don't realize it. Like you see, it makes me think of these celebrity magazines where it says, "Oh, celebrities are people too." They also, you know, blow their nose and they also <laughs> eat ice cream. And it's like, yeah. well, yeah, this is what happened, and it has significance three hundred years later. Right, and hopefully, even though this is a uh, a radio interview, it'll trigger enough interest in people's heads that. They maybe they'd never seen the Lau House or East Jersey Old Town, or have heard about Bar Shot, but never seen one intact from the Revolutionary period here in New Brunswick because we're not on the water per se. Uh, to you know, it'll intrigue them enough to want to seek us out and come visit and and see all the all the things that that we found and that others have found and we're now in possession of and able to display. Yeah. What's great too about the, not to jump around here, but about the buttons, uh, they often have the regimental insignia or numbers on them. So for instance, like some have showed up with CG for the Coldstream Guards. This was a Brit- British regimental unit. So not only can you tell what, what side it is, but you can tell what regiment was, was in a certain location as well. Right. And sometimes the evidence that they find in the ground matches the documented evidence that says that that infantry unit or that guard unit was stationed here and then actually on the property of the Lau House we find that button that proves that so it's it's kind of puts all the pieces together which is really cool that has to be such a great feeling when you make the connection between a physical object and a 
paper manifestation of what you know should be there. Yeah, you know, I think the ar- the archaeologists are the ones that get the real jazz out of it. I mean, because they they know the history of it and they know what they're looking for. But when they're actually able to substantiate it and find proof that you know their their documentary evidence was and research was correct, um, that that justifies what they've been looking for. For sure, I can only imagine how exciting that must be. Okay, so let's move on to the Lao House and. Let's start with what it is, who lived there, and what its, significant, what, uh, what its significance was and still is. All right. Uh, Cornelius Lau was a, a merchant in Newark in the late 1720s till around 1730. Uh, had a shipping business, as did a lot of people at Newark at the time. It was a very busy port, just like it is today. And um, the conjecture and the, the, the guessing really is that he was seeking a place in central New Jersey to move his business that he wasn't in as much competition with other people doing the same thing. So money talks. Uh, so he had heard about this, this port community developing along the Raritan River called Raritan Landing. Basically at the center of River Road and Landing Lane today was the hub of the community and along the wharf as well as along the river. Uh, that he moved his business to in about 1730, moved down here close to the water, uh, built probably a series of docks and wharfs, uh, a small home, uh, a storage facility of some sort probably right along the river as well. Uh, But just like today, uh, the landing flooded a lot. Uh, Just like, you know, today, a couple times a year we see Landing lane closed off because of flooding from the, from the Raritan. So that had happened probably a number of times in the 1730s for him. And then there were two documented large floods in 1738 that kind of convinced him to move up on the bluff. Uh, he purchased two acres of property from uh, Mr. Williamson in 1738. Uh, we think that he probably got stone that he had quarried from a, a quarry near Belleville near Newark and shipped it down and started building his house and moved into his house on the mountain, which he called it in an uh, entry in his family's Bible that indicates one of his son was born in, sons was born in 1741 in my new house on the mountain. Uh, and that's what he called it. So we know that he was in by 1741 in the house that still exists today overlooking the bluff. From the bluff overlooks the intersection of Landing Lane and River Road. Yeah, for, um, I can't imagine it's 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 perched very high up when you drive up River Road and it's at the it's at the Lenny Lane intersection and it's right there it's high up you can't miss it and right it, we, that never flood that can't flood no we 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 uh, introduced uh, school children primarily and, and visitors to the house from the back uh, we talk about the map of Raritan Landing as it existed in the 1730s till around 1830. Uh, we have an actual feature in the landscape that indicates the map of what the area looked like. Uh, and we talk about his new house on the mountain, and from the back it's kind of hard to perceive. And, you know, the the point is that it's not like the Rockies out in Colorado, but we're, we're, we're up high enough that he didn't have to deal with the flooding. And when people get around to the front of the house, they see just, you know, we're up 35, 40 feet. So if we had flooded out up there, there's other issues that we're, we're dealing with uh, as a community. But from his point on the river uh, or on the bluff, it, it accomplished two, two primary things. First, it, it, it moved him out of the floodplain 
uh, showed his prominence in, com in the community uh, from down below, all those people that were the regular people in the community, the blacksmiths, the bakers, bakers the millers, the coopers, the um, you know, stable owners like his brother, uh, you know, the regular people at the landing had to look up the hill and, and see Mr. Lau's stature in the community because what he had really established was one of the primary shipping businesses in and out of central New Jersey using the Raritan River and Raritan Landing had developed at the furthest navigable water on the Raritan River. So that's why Lau moved down here, built his original house, moved up on the hill to escape the flooding, but also to show his, his stature in the community. Was anything that Cornelius Lau built, meaning ports or smaller houses, is any of that still existing today or you haven't found it? Not that we have found. Uh, there's been so much archaeology focused along River Road because of the expansion of River Road and the expansion of Route 18 and all those ramps and things like that. Uh, the community is well documented uh, from that intersection. But the, along the wharf, uh, we've actually just been talking about this relatively recently. It's, you know, you almost wish you had deep pockets and, and resources available because there's, there's got to be evidence along the riverside of, you know, the wharfs and the docks and, and some of the other structures. Uh, but it's not apparent even at low tide, uh, but you really wish you could just get into the, the woods and start excavating and see what they come up with because there's got to be something there. What would you even be looking for for a dock if it's wood? I can't imagine it's still there. <clears throat> Well, it depends on, on what the wood was treated. You find really amazing accounts of, of wood pylons, or at least evidence of the wood pylons um, existing with you know different colors and soil and things like that. Uh, you never know what you might be able to find as far as foundations or um, posts in the ground, markings. Um, yeah, sometimes if there was waterlogged, it'll survive. Yeah. Okay, so when... The Lau House became an exhibit and was acquired by the uh, by this department. What condition was it? Was it run down or was it upkept for the last several uh, well, several decades? Several Lau years. lived there until he died in 1777, uh, and as Mike was saying before, that was right at the time of the British occupation of the area and everything. And Lau had remained loyal to the king uh, until the day he died. So. Um, even though, and I find this amazing, that even though the, the house was actually rented to a Patriot businessman at the time, John Poole, uh, and the two sons of Laos that had, had remained in this country were Patriots. So they owned the estate, and they were renting to John Poole, but the British didn't destroy the house, really. And I, again, my you know, personal conjecture is that it was because it was built by a loyalist. Um, and they respected it as a loyal home, didn't, didn't trash it when they, when they left. Um, but it remains in the hands of this John Poole Jr. until he for, form, formally buys the house in 1792-ish, somewhere around there. Um, and then the house is really a private residence until 1975. The Pools own it until 1870. Uh, the Mettlers, who are another prominent name from this area, own the property until the early teens, 19-teens. Voorhees family owns it then until 1965, another prominent name. Um, and then a lawyer uh, gentleman, uh, Stephen Strong, buys the house in 1965. 
from Mr. Voorhees, and he's a wealthy lawyer, comes from a long line of um, lawyer uh, family um, going way back. And so the house is a private ownership, uh, private residence until 1979 when the county buys the house from Mrs. Strong after Mr. Strong dies. And the people that owned it were wealthy, uh, and they kept it up. They recognized its significance uh, because by that time, you know, even by the late 1800s, it had become one of only two remaining structures from Rarit Landing proper that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they didn't sell off the property. What could have happened? Uh, you know, there's small changes and modifications to the property that have taken place. There's, you know, in-ground pool that's put in the back and garages and things like that. But um, structure-wise, the house is in pretty good shape when the county buys it in 1979. I can't imagine a pool in a garage with it. It's just and yeah, there all sorts yeah modifications. Just you know, we have figure. people stop by from Piscataway that said that there were big blowout parties at the Lau House when the, or Ivy Hall as it was known back then uh, when the Voorhees parents were out of town and and whatnot. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was quite the place to be. That's amazing. That's and it's funny you mentioned Voorhees and Metlow mm-hmm. because those are two big Rutgers names, and the president's residence is right behind the Lab House, right? Mm-hmm. So are those two buildings connected at all? Or just happens to be the president's residence. No, it right? just happens to be, and 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 uh, yeah, it just happens to be that that's the location that they, I think they purchased the property in the '30s or sometime slightly before that. Um, the university did anyway. Okay, so what's in the Lab House now? What when I walk in, what would I find? <laughs> right now, uh, a mess because we're, we're eventually we're starting to take down our current exhibit. Uh, what we do is we interpret the site as our only artifact, really, that we own. Uh, we interpret its significance at Rarit Landing. Um, its significance today is one of the only two remaining structures from Rarit Landing. But then we fill it with exhibits based on local, state and local history. Uh, so the exhibit that we're just closing, uh, just closed yesterday uh, on Sunday, was the uh, medical history of New Jersey. So the, the freeholders made a conscious effort in, in 1979 and the early 80s to fill it with um, changing exhibits to broaden the horizons and broaden the, the scope and the outreach uh, into the community so that we didn't become static with just the house museum. So um, we can tell different stories and we keep our exhibits up for 12 to 14 months usually. Uh, So the next exhibit that's going to go up is going to be on the history of the film industry here in New Jersey, um, which was um, basically the very late 1800s, early 1920s, uh, into the early 1920s, and we're going to be talking about how New Jersey was really the Hollywood before Hollywood was Hollywood. Interesting. Yeah. And that should go up in uh, late September. Okay. It seems like an odd fit for a colonial time, but I understand the making it relevant. Did the medical exhibit have artifacts from the 1700s and medicine from this time? or uh, Not so. The, the artifacts, not so much. Uh, we picked up the artifacts really from the mid-1800s um, that we borrowed from other institutions. Some of the uh, um, medical instruments in particular from the Civil War period. Interesting. Okay. Fantastic. What what sort of permanent exhibits are there in the Lau House? Is it set up as if 
Cornelius Lab was there? How does it No, happen? no, okay. it's no, really um, the house is the connection that we have to Lao and we um, make sure that most of when people come to tour, especially school children, uh, half of our tour is dedicated to the house and the history of Lao and the restoration of the building that took place in the mid-90s. And then they're kind of, that's introduced to them on the way down the path and into the house. And then uh, once they go inside, there's a, a brief hit about uh, architectural features and things like that. But then we switch over to the his, the the exhibit that we're, we're talking about at that time period. Okay, great. Is this the only... Is this the only, I guess, significant point that you have in Piscataway in terms of colonial history and the Revolutionary War? Is there anything else that you found that's of tremendous significance or is this the only thing standing? Or As far as uh, public sites, there are private um, uh, sites, uh, privately owned, that date from, uh, from the 18th century that still survive in Piscataway. Uh, there are uh, some churches as well nearby that have ties to uh, uh, to the Revolutionary War or the colonial period as well. But um, you know, as far as a public site that visitors can can come to and walk through, uh, uh, the Lau House is certainly one of them, or the village here. And there's a couple other public sites. The, the Mettler House, which is uh, also in Piscataway along River Road, part of it dates from the 18th century. We talked about the Bucklew uh, Mansion in New Brunswick as an early. Uh, a site, uh, a colonial site that's a, a public uh, site as well. Uh, but there are privately owned uh, his, historic homes from the colonial period that still survive, uh, and, uh, and they've been identified uh, uh, through surveys and uh, historic research. Okay, so they're just not, they're not open to the public, but you know about them and you're aware of them, and mm-hmm. they're yeah. still residences. Right, yeah. Okay. Yep, they're, they're serving the same function they did 250 <laughs> years ago. Good to see that, you know, they don't have to serve a dual purpose or something, <laughs> right? So, all right, so this is, this is really fascinating to me still to know that there's so much here and people don't really understand it. Um, so, Cornelius Lau was in, a loyalist, incredibly wealthy, incredibly prominent. How did that not have an effect? Because you said the community was split into thirds almost of people who were patriots and people who were loyalists. How, how did he not have a, a, a further effect if he was such a prominent figure in the community? How did he not have a stronger effect on being a, even a solely loyalist presence in New Brunswick and Piscataway? You mean how he's impacting other people? or Because he has so right, much... Exactly, because he saying. has so much wealth and he has so much influence and power and he's... <clears throat> Coming into the community and really building his own business up, how does he not have more influence? And how is there still, you know, his sons are patriots. How, how did that happen? Right. Well, actually, his son, one is, one is, one isn't. Okay. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I, and I think, but that's a good, you know, a good example is that ultimately it's going to boil down to your personal choice. Right. Um, and no matter how much people try to persuade you, it's, it's that personal choice. And I think that the classic example of that is um, the proprietary house in Perth Amboy. The proprietary house is the last uh, original colonial governor's mansion from the, the 13 colonies. It, and, uh, the last royal governor of New Jersey was William Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's son. Uh, and he is uh, he's a loyalist. He sides with the British. I mean, he's, he's the British voice here in New Jersey, so it, it should come as no surprise. But Benjamin Franklin comes to Perth Amboy to try and convince his son to, to side 
against the British, and uh, and he doesn't. So uh, you know, here you have two very powerful people, well known, uh, both taking opposing views, and uh, and his father Franklin trying to convince his son uh, what side to choose. So I think ultimately it does. It comes down to the, the personal choice, and people you know pay the consequences for that. And you brought up William Franklin, who actually chartered Rutgers back in back in 1766, and I know that. The Revolutionary War had a very strong effect on Rutgers and actually forced it to close for the first time around. So can you speak a little bit about that? Well, uh, I, I mean, I don't know personally too much about the, uh, the direct impact with, uh, uh, with Rutgers other than that, you know, this is what's happening throughout the whole, uh, you know, the whole region, the, the, disru- the disruption that the, the war is, uh, is causing. Um, uh, you know, I think... An interesting um, uh, part of one of the displays that we have here, I mean, because we've been talking about disruptions and, uh, you know, the utter chaos that is happening uh, in the area, um, is that in the Indian Queen Tavern, we have one of the rooms set up um, to reflect uh, an entertainment that was given to Washington just at the the close of the war. And I think that's sort of a interesting from our perspective as guides and uh, curators to, to talk about the complete cycle because you have uh, you know the start of the war, the devastation that it causes in the region, the, the splitting up of families, choosing sides, the disruption of, uh, of uh, the, the college and everything else in the area. Uh, but then, so what happens after the war ends? And then there's this great rebuilding that takes place. And George Washington, um, who fled New Brunswick, as Mike talked about earlier, finds himself in New Brunswick in December of 1783 uh, after the Treaty of Paris has been signed, essentially ending the war. So the the war is over. He's back in New Brunswick again. And the the citizens of New Brunswick, they throw him a party in the Indian Queen Tavern building, the tavern, which we have here at East Jersey Old Town now. And um, they were thanking him for what he did during the, the war. And... Uh, in helping to gain our country's independence and for all the, the hard work that he did. And um, we know a little bit about that event because there was a, there's some documents that describe there's a, an article that shows up in one of the New Brunswick newspapers. They drank 13 toasts, presumably for the 13 colonies. Uh, they, there was a nice address that was read to New Brunswick by the citizens of, of the city. And then Washington responded with his own address and niceties to uh, to the citizens. So, you know, here you have sort of this positive, uh, upbeat feeling uh, where Washington, who had a very strong connection to New Brunswick, gets the chance to get back here and is thanked by the, uh, the citizens uh, in a building that we now have here at, uh, at East Jersey Old Town. 